Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We've been going through the book of Romans verse by verse, and we'll continue to do that a little bit tonight. And, and um, Romans chapter 6 is a, is a turning point in uh, what Paul has been teaching thus far. The first uh, three chapters, really, Paul talks about the judgment that we found ourselves uh, in, the judgment against us because of Adam's sin and the fact that we were enemies of God and without any moral strength to, to change our conditions. He goes on further to tell us that, uh, that uh, through the work of Adam, in uh, chapter 5, he tells us through the federal work of Adam as the, the head of mankind, Adam's sin sentenced us all to death. But then he tells us because of Jesus' sin as representative uh, or the federal head of all those that would be believers in him, Jesus' one action delivered us from that judgment. And so he pronounced us uh, not guilty. He declared us righteous from judgment. He goes further and tells us in chapter 5 about the things that we have as a result of Jesus' declaration that we're righteous. He said we've discovered that we have peace with God. Uh, we've been justified unto life. He said that we have the opportunity to reign in life through Christ Jesus because of the, the work of Jesus. He sets up the, the, the one man, uh, actually it's God's two men, but the action of one as standing for you and I. First Adam sinned, then Jesus work on the cross. Chapter 6, he begins talking about something that pertains to all of us, and that is he introduces a holy walk. Up until this point, he's been talking about the, the finished work of Jesus as um, uh, being the, the basis for our righteousness. And as a result, he talks about or he asks two questions. This uh, chapter 6 is easily divided in half. He asks two questions. first one is in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue, continue in sin that grace may abound? You may notice verse 21 in chapter 5. He ended saying where, great, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So he says, so then what should we say or what should we do? What position should we take? Shall we continue in sin that grace can abound? And then verse 15, the second question that he answers uh, deals with and then answers he said what then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace so he uh, he introduces something that um, well in my opinion is is probably the most misunderstood or overlooked I'm not sure which one it is maybe both but uh, the most misunderstood or overlooked aspect of who we are in Christ uh, there are a lot of things that people uh, in our circles and uh, that we're familiar with will apply their faith toward. But this is one area, the greatest area that you need to apply your faith in. And it seems to be overlooked by most Christians. So I'm going to, rather than take it verse by verse to begin with, I'm going to start off in verse 1 and read down through verse 11. And then we'll back up and we'll take them piece by piece. So he said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized unto Jesus Christ were baptized unto his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto de into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. 
Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, as I said, we'll go through this uh, piece by piece, but there's one main uh, theme in these uh, first 11 verses, really the first half of the chapter, that, uh, that is critical for you to understand. And the reason I didn't start off going verse by verse is because I wanted you to get the, the overall picture and then see how Paul tries to, to make his case or to prove the point. The overall case is very simply this. Jesus died unto sin. Now, that may not sound any different than some things that we've said before. There are other scriptures in the New Testament that said Jesus died for sin. But Paul says that Jesus died unto sin. Don't turn that unto into a for. Jesus died unto sin. And the Bible says that he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Paul is going to identify that we now have a place of of um, because of the righteousness that we've been declared uh, by Jesus and his work on the cross, we have a place of walking in newness of life. But here's why we have a place or an opportunity to walk in newness of life, and that is Jesus died unto sin. Jesus died unto sin. Now, I could say this all night long, and it wouldn't make any sense to us. And I think that's what happens so often in our Christian lives. We don't realize what dying unto sin means. Paul is going to make the case and prove the case conclusively that Jesus, when he died unto sin, broke the relationship between mankind and sin once and for all. Now, he's not talking about sins that you've committed. Those were things that we were judged for, and those were things that we were part of Adam's judgment in the earlier chapters. He's talking about dying unto sin, original sin, sin as a, as a category, not things that you've done wrong. He died unto sin once and for all. In other words, he broke your relationship with sin. Now, here's how most of the church world operates. Most of the church world thinks, well, Jesus died for us. He forgave our sins on the cross by the shedding of his blood. And he declared us righteous. Yeah, the Bible says that we've been declared righteous. But we know that there's the presence of sin in our flesh. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to make ourselves uh, grow in the things of God mature in, in, in God to the, such a point where we can do things that are pleasing unto him. And that negates everything that Jesus did. That's saying that Jesus died so that God could say we're righteous, but our righteousness really depends on our behavior. And most of the Christian world lives that way. And here's the thing that Paul is trying to get across. And folks, please understand, he introduces this early on. This is Christianity 101. I know it's advanced courses for most folks, even people that have been saved for decades and, and so forth. But this is Christianity 101, at least it's intended to be. And that is Jesus broke our relationship with sin once and for all. He broke our relationship with sin. There is no more sin that you and I have a relationship with. Yeah, but what about the sin in our flesh? What about the problems that we have with our flesh? Well, he's going to answer that. He's going to talk about how that works and, and why that works and so forth. But there is no relationship with sin anymore. You have no relationship with sin 
in any way, any context, in any form, and never will have again. Now, if you understand that and understand what you're supposed to do with that, that'll set you free. Let's start in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we? This word we is a class. It stands as a class of people. Literally, it reads in other translations and probably better translations than the King James, such a ones as we. Now, he's just told us in chapter 5 that Adam sinned for everybody. Then he told us that Jesus paid the price for sin for everybody. So the such a ones as we are those who have received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. So what he's talking about is how is it possible that such a ones as we, those who Jesus has declared righteous, should continue in sin? Now, what ones are we? Notice it says in the King James, how shall we that are dead? That word dead is not the word dead. It's died. How are we that died, such ones as we that died, to live any longer therein? How is it possible for somebody that died with Jesus? And that's the whole point he's making here, folks. You died with Jesus. How can somebody that died with Jesus and in that death, their relationship with sin was broken once and for all, for all of eternity? How can somebody live in sin like that any longer? How is it possible? That's like saying, how can somebody that died in Los Angeles walk around in Los Angeles anymore? It's impossible. He's not saying we shouldn't. He's saying you can't. Yeah, but doesn't that, does that mean we can't sin in the flesh? Sure you can. He's going to talk about that in the last half of the chapter. But that's not the point. He's talking relationship. You have no relationship with sin any longer. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now, he's got to be talking about water baptism here because these folks wouldn't know what it means to be baptized in Christ. That's part of what he's teaching them. But he's really saying, don't you understand that what you, what you experience in baptism, what you already believe about baptism proves this teaching that I'm giving you now? That's the point he's making. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Paul identifies himself as part of that class, so he got baptized in water somewhere along the way. We don't know who, by who or, who or when, what the circumstances are, but he identifies himself as part of that group. He said, therefore, we are buried with him by baptism. Notice what baptism is associated with. Here's one of the greatest reasons why uh, the, uh, the biblical picture of baptism, New Testament picture of baptism, should be immersion, not sprinkling. And that is, baptism is not associated with cleansing. Water baptism is not associated with being raised to seated, seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Water baptism is, so, is associated with one and only one thing, and that's dying. It signifies when we go down into the water that we died with him. Now, we didn't stay dead any more than he stayed dead. We're raised up to walk in newness of life. But baptism is the picture of death. Now, if you died, why is it that we, you, meaning uh, any and all of us, Christians in general, why is it that Christians are trying so hard to work their way into to doing good or doing right or being righteous or looking righteous or acting righteous or whatever the case might be? You're dead. Literally, you died. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ, everybody say like as Christ. Here's a point Paul is making in this chapter, and that is 
Jesus' death was your death. Jesus' resurrection is your resurrection. This is not something that uh, we have a picture of what he did. What it really means is his death was our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, stop and think about it for a minute, folks. What is he saying we should have and what is he saying we should do? Since Jesus was raised from the dead, since he died for our sins and he was raised from the dead, what kind of life are you supposed to live? You supposed to live like Jesus lived on the earth? You wouldn't answer no matter what I asked, would you? Think about it. What, what are you supposed to live? He's talking about a manner of life. He's talking about a, a way or a lifestyle, uh, a way to live or a lifestyle. What kind of life are you and I supposed to live? What is walking in newness of life? Is it Jesus on the earth? Nope. Think about Jesus' experience. Jesus lived on the earth as a righteous man under the old covenant. Well, we're not under the old covenant, so we're not supposed to live like that, certainly. Jesus never one moment in his life here on the earth, in his earthly life, in his earthly walk, never one moment did sin have any dominion over him. Did sin have any place in him whatsoever? He hung on the cross as a spotless, sinless lamb of God, right? But God made him to be sin. In other words, he used Jesus as the sacrifice for your sins and my sins and for the sin, uh, sin singular of mankind, Adam's sin. As a result, Jesus died spiritually at what point did sin ever dominate jesus never death dominated him for three days and then he was raised again from the dead but what kind of life was he raised up to have see the bible says that just as jesus died we have his death in the same likeness of his death is our death in the same likeness of his life is our life how did how what was jesus like after he was raised from the dead well, remember, he appeared to his disciples and he said, handle me. A, flesh, uh, a spirit has not flesh and bone like I have. He didn't say flesh and blood. Now, the Bible says of our earthly life, it says the life of the body is in the flesh. I mean, uh, what did I say? The life of the flesh is the blood. That's what I'm trying to say. I, I know I messed that up. I'm not even sure what I said. The Old Testament says that as far as our earthly life is concerned, the blood is the life of the flesh. Jesus has no blood running in his veins. So the newness of life Jesus has is not an earthly life. The newness of life that is now ours is not an earthly life. It's a heavenly life. That's why the Bible emphasizes that we've been raised up together with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. You're not like Jesus here on the earth. You're supposed to live the heavenly life now on the earth. Do you understand what he's saying? That's the, 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 the likeness of his death and his resurrection that we're supposed to experience. Now, I know that most of us don't think in those terms, and that's what keeps us servants to sin. How much trouble do you think Jesus has with sin? Jesus never had a problem with sin. There was a three-day period when death dominated him. Sin never did, but death did because he was made to be sin for us. So death dominated him for three days, and after that, never again will there ever be any problem with sin or death as far as Jesus is concerned, and that's the life that the Bible says is yours. In other words, Jesus had an experience 
with death for three days. But at the end of those three days, when he was raised from the dead, that relationship with death was broken once and for all, never to be, co- never to be joined together again, never to be entered into again. And that's what the Bible says is your relationship with sin. It's been done away with. It's been broken. So many Christians are going through life thinking they're bound by sin, thinking they're powerless by something they have no relationship with. Are you out there? You see what he's saying? Verse, four, uh, verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness, same kind of death, same kind of resurrection, the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, the heavenly life. Keep that in mind, folks. I'm going to ask you a question as we go a little bit further, and it'll make perfect sense to you. Knowing this, here's a problem that a lot of folks have, verse of scripture that people have problems with. Knowing this, the word knowing means coming to the knowledge of. Coming to the knowledge of. This is what Paul is teaching because he's trying to get them to come to the knowledge of. Coming to the knowledge that our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, notice he didn't say that we wouldn't have a relationship with sin. He said that we should not serve sin. There's two things that Paul's going to deal with. The two questions that he answers, he asks and answers. The first is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, the answer to that is no, because we have no relationship with sin ever again. The second question is, shall we continue in sin because we're not under law? Well, he's going to tell us in the last half of the chapter that sin still exists. Sin still exists. We still have the experience of sin. Our bodies were trained to sin when we were bound by spiritual death. Our bodies still have that training, that residual training, that leftover training in our flesh and in our minds. And so as a result, because we have been set free from sin and death, the Bible says you're going to have to choose who you're going to serve. There's no middle ground. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve sin. Now, does that mean you enter back into a relationship with sin? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You cannot enter back into a relationship with sin. Even if you're committing sin from your flesh. That's not a relationship. Jesus broke that once and for all. And if he didn't break it once and for all, then his death wasn't what the Bible says that it was. But you're going to have to make a decision about who you're going to serve. And he'll talk about that a little bit as we go. Notice he says, verse 6, knowing this, coming to the knowledge of this, that our old man is crucified with him. Notice something is already dead. Now, what is the old man? The old man is not sin in the flesh. The old man is not the tendency or the temptation in our flesh to do wrong. The old man is everything and everybody, every, everything and everyone that we were in, in Adam. The old man is who we were in Adam. It's impossible for a man in Adam to be saved. It's not impossible for him to come to Jesus, but it's impossible for any old man, the man that we were in Adam, to remain in existence because that's who died. That was the real you. That was the man that was under judgment because of Adam's sin and Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden. Sin began to dominate over mankind as a whole. That's the man that died. That was the real you. Now there's a new real you. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. 
Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. You remember in the Old Testament where uh, God instituted the Passover? And then he told Israel, he said, now this is going to be the first month of the year for you. It wasn't the first month of the year for the rest of the world. But he said, for you, this is a new beginning. When your old man, the real you, the real you that used to be, was crucified with Christ, when you make Jesus the Lord of your life and accept his death as your death, the relationship with sin is broken and you get a new beginning. Now, the rest of the world doesn't operate according to your new beginning any more than the rest of the world operated according to the Jewish calendar. God changed the Jewish calendar to say, you have a new beginning. Well, in Christ, you have a new beginning because there is no relationship with death anymore. What made, uh, what made Israel's new beginning? God's work of sacrifice and, uh, for sin. God's work of redemption, the Old Testament type of redemption in the Passover. What makes your new beginning? Prayer? Struggling to do the right thing? Now, the finished work of Jesus. That is your new beginning. Knowing this, coming to the knowledge of this, that our old man is crucified. It's a done deal. Already finished. Never to be revisited again. The old man is crucified. With him, that the body of sin, the body means the vehicle of sin, the means whereby sin tries to operate in our flesh and through our minds. The word destroyed means put out of business. It's saying because the old man was crucified, the real you died with Jesus. The real you that Jesus paid the price for is just as dead as Jesus was before God raised him from the dead. See, folks, Jesus now is not the Jesus that paid the price for your sin. He's just as much a new creature as you are. God didn't just wipe sin off of Jesus when he raised him up from the dead. Jesus, the Bible said, was made sin to be made to be sin for you and me. That means he literally was spiritually dead. If he was your sacrifice, if he paid the price for you, he literally died spiritually. I know that's hard for some people to grasp, and, and some people have the wrong idea about what we're saying, and so they, they think it's a sacrilegious notion, but sin had to be paid for. And the Bible says the only way to pay for sin is something has to die. We know that something that died is Jesus. But it wasn't physical death that, that caused you to be born again. It wasn't physical death that redeemed you. It was spiritual death. It wasn't Jesus shedding his blood on the cross that made the difference for your redemption. That was a part of it. But Jesus had to be made sin because sin had to be paid for. The price had to be paid. Well, if that price wasn't paid, then you and I still owe it. If spiritual death did not occur, then spiritual death could not be paid for, which means it still has to be paid. But the Bible says Jesus paid it for us. Now, what was the result or what's the benefit for us for that spiritual death price to be paid? Well, you took his death with you. His death was your death and his resurrection is your resurrection to this end that the body, the vehicle of sin these unredeemed bodies that we still operate in now might be put out of business. Now, that's what so many people are trying to do. Oh, Pastor Mark, I'm trying to put it out of business. Well, if you're trying, you're working on the wrong end. The Bible says that the reason 
that we can say that the body of sin is put out of business is because your old man was crucified with Jesus. Not because you do good things. Not because you pray enough or read your Bible enough or do enough good works. But because Jesus, through his death, crucified your old man. That the body of sin might be put out of business, that henceforth we should not serve sin. That henceforth we should not serve sin. Folks, please understand what Paul is saying. He's saying it's possible. There is the potential for each and every Christian to live a sinless life. To walk in this earth just as righteously as Jesus is in heaven. Not just as righteously as he was on the earth. We've got a higher standard to, uh, to operate in or by. For, verse 7, he that is dead literally has died. He that has died is freed from sin. That's easy enough to understand, isn't it? Somebody that died is no longer subject to sin. We know that physically. If somebody dies in the flesh, they don't have a problem with sin in their bodies anymore, do they? Because their death has separated them once and for all from the sin that was in their bodies. In the same way, Jesus' death separated you once and for all, ended your relationship with sin once and for all, never to be rejoined. Are you out there? Now, that's what Jesus did. Now, let's keep going. Now, if we have died, if we be dead, literally have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Again, that's the life that he has at the right hand of the Father, not the life that he lived here on the earth. Knowing, coming to the knowledge of, that Jesus, that Christ being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. When Jesus was raised from the dead, we'll say it again, maybe in a little different way than what we did before. When Jesus was raised from the dead... How much death was left hanging on him? When God said that was enough and he raised him at his right, to be seated at his right hand, how much residual power did spiritual death have over him? Any trace whatsoever? Well, the Bible says his death is your death. The Bible says his resurrection is your resurrection. How much trace of spiritual death is left on you? None. He that died, death has no longer dominion over. Now, folks, you understand this is a faith proposition, don't you? Because everything about our flesh, everything about our mind, everything about our feelings says this is not so. This, is, this ain't true. This ain't true. This ain't true. But God said it, so it has to be true. For in that he died, verse 10... He died unto, not for, he died unto sin once. He broke the relationship between mankind and sin. He died for man's sins, not your, uh, uh, not his own. So his death was a federal death, an all-encompassing death for mankind. And he died unto sin once. He didn't die unto sin again and again and again and again and again. So why in the world do Christians go through life trying to die into sin over and over and over again? The answer is very simple, and that is they're not operating in faith on what the Bible says Jesus did for them. Now, we'll operate in faith for finances. We'll operate in faith for healing. 
We'll operate in faith for relationships, family relationships to be turned around. We'll operate in faith for, for work situations to change. And all those things are good and all those things are, are, are right. But how many of us are operating in faith where our righteousness is concerned? Not too many people that I see. And that's the, the number one place that you ought to apply your faith. Because this is a faith, faith proposition. So he said, for in that he died, Jesus died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. One translation says, in continual fellowship with him. Let me read this to you from William's translation. For by the death that he died, he died once and for all. He died. I'm sorry. Let me start over. It's this small print in my Bible. When I wrote this, I could see it many years ago. For by the death that he died, he died once and for all ended his relationship with sin. His death was a once and for all thing when it came to sin. Verse 11 comes down to what we do then. Likewise reckon you yourselves also to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word reckon is interesting because it means except to be true what is an accomplished fact. In other words, he's saying, this is a faith proposition. You have to accept this to be true if you're going to reap the benefits thereof. You have to accept this to be true. Notice in verse 12, he said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Now he's talking about an act of the will. Notice what he doesn't say. Notice he doesn't say, Jesus dealt with sin once and for all, so there is no longer sin in your flesh. Notice he didn't say sin is now absent from your body. Why is that not the case? Because our bodies, before we were saved, our bodies were trained. Our minds were trained to sin. They're still operating according to that old training. Well, what are we to do with it? The Bible says we can exercise our will and resist it. If we'll accept to be true the established reality, the established fact that Jesus died unto sin once and for all and you have no relationship with sin. You know what's one of the hardest things to, to grasp, one of the hardest things to accept because your mind will tell you otherwise and your feelings will tell you otherwise. Here's one of the hardest things to accept. In the middle of you committing sin, you have no relationship with sin. In the middle of you telling a lie, you have no relationship with with sin, meaning lying. In In the midst of stealing something, you have no relationship with sin. In the midst of cutting somebody down with your words, speaking out of love, you have no relationship with sin. Now, everything about your mind will say, wait a minute, that can't be right. Everything about your feelings will say there's something wrong with that. But that's exactly what the Bible says Jesus did for you. He died unto sin once and for all for you, not for himself. To end mankind's relationship and make a clean break with that relationship that we had with sin through Adam. Our old man has been crucified. Now don't confuse that with what the Bible says in other places about put on the new man. He's talking about a holy walk. He's talking about not letting As an act of your will, not letting sin reign in your body, in the members of your flesh. Your flesh still has that training to sin. It's still going to want to go on sinning. 
But because you have no longer a relationship with sin, you can resist that as an act of your will. It's more important that you understand this than we finish the chapter. Because here's how you overcome sin. Most everybody has one thing that they keep stumbling over again and again and again. With some people, it's, it's easy to see. With some people, it's addictions or, or smoking or drinking or whatever it is, you know, substance abuse or whatever the case might be. Those are easy to see. The things that aren't so easy to see are the hidden things that we keep stumbling over, things that nobody knows about but you and me. But it's very rare for somebody to, to deal with a whole variety of different sins. It, all, it usually comes down to one, maybe two things that they keep stumbling over again and again and again. The devil knows your hot button, in other words. He knows how to tempt you. He knows where you're the most likely to, to yield to what he's uh, influencing you to do through the training of your flesh before you were saved. And as a result, we sin, feel guilty, repent, sin, feel guilty, repent. And that's the pattern that most Christians go through. And so they see scriptures that say we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and their head says, well, that may be true for other people, but that just shows how unworthy I am as a believer. But here's how you break the cycle. You break the cycle by declaring I have no relationship with sin. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus no matter what my body does today or tomorrow. Now, some people will interpret that as being a license to sin. But, folks, I've found people to sin with or without a license. I'm talking about how to overcome. See, most people that keep stumbling over the same thing again and again have uh, convinced themselves or allowed themselves to be convinced by the devil that they are powerless to overcome this thing, whatever it might be. The Bible says nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible says you have the ability to choose not to yield your members to sinful activity. Why? Because Jesus died into sin and broke your relationship with sin once and for all. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I'm not strong enough. I'm not strong-willed enough to keep it from happening. I know that. That's why it's important for you to reckon yourselves dead into sin. How do you reckon yourself dead into sin? As I said, reckoning is a faith word. It means to accept something to be true that God has declared. Why? Because it's true. Not because you feel like it, not because it looks like it in your body, but because God said so. So what do we do? We make our declaration. How do we operate by faith? Believe in the heart and say with the mouth. So we make our declaration by faith that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, period. The devil will say you're not righteous because of what you did yesterday. God says you're righteous because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Which one's true? The one that God said. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The more you begin to confess that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, here's what will happen. The devil will cause you to slip up. And as soon as you slip up, he wants to get you back into that old pattern. Feel guilty, repent, sin again. Feel guilty, repent, and sin again. The way you break that pattern is in the middle of the, pattern, the, the cycle of feeling guilty and repenting, you stop and say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, for forgiving me for my wrong action, my wrong behavior, and for cleansing me from unrighteousness, but I'm still the righteousness of God no matter whether I did it or not. 
Now, if you've never tried that, that'll rock the devil's world. Because now you are reckoning yourselves to be dead unto sin. You are reckoning yourself to be the righteousness of God, not because of what you have or have not done, but because God says you are. And for you to make your confession in the middle of sinful behavior, sinful actions of your flesh, gives the devil absolutely no room to attack you. He can't say, yeah, but you just did wrong. I know that. That's why I just confess that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but you're going to do it again. You know your pattern. You feel guilty and you repent and do it again. Well, if I do, I'll make my confession at that point, just like I did now, that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not righteous because I don't sin. I'm righteous because Jesus died unto sin for me. See, folks, that's reckoning yourself dead unto sin. That's accepting what God said to be true as the truth. Well, what's going to happen? Some people will say, well, if you do that, then, then people will just bless their hearts. They'll just keep sinning over and over and over again, claiming to be righteous. Yeah, and? Isn't that what God says? Now, Paul's whole point is, should we continue in sin so that grace can abound? No, certainly not. How shall such a ones as us that have been raised from the dead by Christ in his resurrection, how can we continue in sin? We can't. We can't. Well, then what's going to happen? You'll get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And finally, someday, some way, you'll break the pattern where you'll be tempted just like you always were to do the same thing again. And you'll say, no, I don't think so. Will it happen overnight? Rarely. But it will happen. And then you'll be able to operate in what the second half of the chapter talks about, presenting yourself unto God and yielding your members as instruments of righteousness. That doesn't happen just because you wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to be strong from now on. That happens because you reckon yourselves dead unto sin by believing in your heart what God said about you, that your relationship with sin has ended once and for all. Confessing that and standing your ground. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, verse 12, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments from, of righteousness unto God. In other words, he's saying, here's what the power made available for you to overcome the action and the behavior and the lifestyle of sin in your flesh, here's how that power is made available by reckoning yourselves dead unto sin. What's the alternative? Reckon yourselves alive unto sin. Thinking the, the sacrifice and the death of Jesus was, well, I'm sure it did something, but it sure hadn't helped me overcome in life. That's completely the opposite of what the Bible says is true. You're taking sides against God's word. And, folks, there is no middle ground on this. It's one way or the other. You're either reckoning yourselves as dead unto sin or you're reckoning yourselves as alive unto sin. You're either believing that sin has no relationship with you or you're believing that you're still entangled with it. Now, I'm not talking about behavior. I'm talking about who you are. Remember, you're dominated from the inside out, not from the outside in. 
The devil wants to make you think that it's the outside in. The devil wants to make you think because you're doing things wrong on the outside, that means you're not who the Bible says you are on the inside. And nothing could be further from the truth. Are you out there? Any of this making sense? Again, verse 13, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. The word yield is the word present. It's the same word that's used over in Romans chapter 12 where it says present your bodies a living sacrifice, but it has two different meanings. Over in chapter 12 where it says present your bodies a living sacrifice, it means consecrate yourself to God. Here it doesn't mean consecrate yourself to God. It means to assume an attitude. It means to adopt an attitude of being in a certain class of people. Well, what class of people are we in? Those that are dead unto sin. And because we have assumed that class of people, it'd be like if we said uh, if, a, if a sports team uh, instructed all their people to, to show up the next morning at 9.30 in the morning. Well, everybody that was there, everybody that was part of the team would show up. Why? Maybe nobody knows what the meeting's about. Maybe nobody knows why they've been told to report. But they're going to show up because they're part of the group. That's what he's talking about in verse 13. He's talking about as part of the group, here's what you should do. Here's the attitude you should adopt because this is the group's attitude. The group's attitude is my body does not belong to sin because I have no relationship with sin. My body is under my control. The man on the inside. Not the old man in Adam. He's been crucified. Have you ever noticed the Bible never says to die to yourself? It says to accept to be true what Jesus has done for you. It's totally a faith proposition. The attitude that you have about sin in your flesh is totally a faith uh, proposition. It's the operation of faith. It's not the operation of your body. It's the operation of faith. So he says, adopt this attitude that I'll yield the instruments of my body. I'll yield the members of my body as instruments of righteousness alone. That's the attitude I should have. Well, what if I trip and fall? Then I'll declare that I'm righteous in the middle of falling and gain strength so that I won't fall as quickly next time. Maybe not at all. Eventually, I'll get to the place where I won't fall at all. Why? Because I have done what the Bible said to do. I have obeyed the Bible where it says, reckon yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Now, he's talking about lifestyle now. He's talking about behavior. He's saying, here's the way to get to the place where you are free from the experience of sin in your flesh. Now, the experience will always be there, but you don't always have to yield to it. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Other translations say, other translations say, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. I think that's good. Why? For you are not under under law, but under grace. King James says the law, meaning that would be referring to the law of Moses. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about any law. I want you to understand something, folks. When Jesus made us new creatures in Him. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. One translation, as we've said before, if any man be in Christ, he's a new species of being. 
those that are in Christ Jesus is the first man on the face of the earth that has not been governed by a law, a legal principle. Even Adam was governed by a legal principle. God gave him one commandment, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. There is no legal principle that you're bound by. None. Why? Because you're in Christ. You're this new species of being. That's what under grace, not under law and being under grace really means. It means there is no legal principle for you to follow, no behavior that you have to enjoin to please God. None. Not not many. None. To say otherwise would be like to say that your hand has a set of rules that it has to follow to be able to be pleasing to your head. Your head and your hand are a part of the same body. We're all in this together. You are not under law. You're under grace. You are under the finished work of Jesus and that in and of itself and forever will be the deciding factor that God is on your side. I'm going to say something that some people can't accept, but if you, if you have a hard time with it, just put it on the shelf and meditate on it. You'll get it one of these days. There's nothing you can do to make God mad at you. There's nothing you can do ever that will put God on the other side against you. There are things that you can do to remove the blessing of God from operating in your life. But even at that, God's not against you. He doesn't take the side against you. There's nothing that you can do or ever ever will be able to do that takes God from being your, on your side. What then, verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law? Under law. Again, it's not the law. It's under law, but under grace. God forbid. Know ye not. Here's the principle that you need to understand. Here's the experience of your flesh and how to overcome it. The experience of sin in your flesh and how to overcome it. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. In other words, the simple fact is this. Who you let your body be dominated by is who you're going to serve. You can either serve righteousness from the inside, the new man on the inside, as directed by the Holy Ghost, or you can serve sin. It still doesn't mean you have a relationship with sin anymore, but you can serve sin if you choose. But it's one or the other. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin. Now, God's going to speak of you no matter, and, and he's writing to people that sinned that day. He's writing to people that have done things that are wrong that the heart condemns them for uh, that day or previous days or whatever. He's got, he knows that there are people that have sins or wrongdoings in mind when he says these things to them. But he says by the Holy Ghost that they are already free from sin. He says by the Holy Ghost that they're already the servants of righteousness in their lifestyle. God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. That's a real bad translation. That form of doctrine is the gospel of salvation, meaning the good news that Jesus died for you that caused you to be delivered. It makes it sound like, the King James makes it sound like it was delivered unto you, but the gospel delivered them. Delivered them from what? Any and every relationship with sin. 
You were the servants of sin, but since you made Jesus the Lord of your life and accepted his death as your death, his resurrection as your resurrection, now you've been delivered. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Notice that's past tense. Notice that's something that's already been done. You were made free from sin. How? Because you died with Jesus. Even water baptism teaches you that. Signifies the death that Christ died for you and that you died with him. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity, literally the strengthlessness of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. Paul doesn't seem to say that some of you are going to be strong enough to be able to do this. Paul is speaking by the Holy Ghost and saying that anybody and everybody can. Now stop and think about what that means. There are people at different stages of growth in the Christian development. There are people that, are, that have developed stronger, um, uh, they're stronger willed people than others. There are people that are stronger in faith than others. There are people that are more knowledgeable in the things of God than others. How can, how can Paul, by the Holy Ghost, make the same statement about everybody? Why didn't he say, now those of you that are a little bit further down the road on this, help the weaker ones? He does say that about other things, but not about this. Why is he able, or how is he able, to make a blanket statement like this? Because, folks, it's not dependent on how strong you are. It's not dependent on how spiritually mature you are. It's not dependent on how much experience you have. It's dependent on one and only one thing, and that is you died with Jesus. And Jesus broke everybody's relationship with sin. So there's no question about whether or not you can yield the the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. No question whatsoever. Because the source of that strength comes from the death that you died in him. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. Now, he's talking about natural things. He said, when you were the servants of sin, before you got saved, you weren't worried about performing righteous acts, were you? There was no relationship with righteousness whatsoever. In no danger, in any form whatsoever, to perform acts of righteousness. Why? Because your old man was alive. You were still operating as the son of Adam. Spiritually dead. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? What fruit did it produce? Those things that you're ashamed to even say that you did before you got saved? What fruit was there in those things? Well, none. None worthwhile anyway. For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become, having become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. In other words, he's saying, how can you produce dead fruit or dead works when your relationship with sin has been destroyed it's unnatural for the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord folks i want you to get certain things several things let me go over them real quickly the first thing you need to keep in mind and never ever ever forget you have no relationship with sin you will never have another relationship with sin. The only relationship you had with sin was before you were saved. Once you accepted Jesus' death for your, as your own, 
that relationship with sin was broken. Now, a lot of Christians, most Christians don't, don't understand that and don't know how to accept it. And so they're struggling with sin, at least in their mind, they're struggling with sin back and forth. And their conflict with the experience of sin, the training of sin in their flesh and in their bodies isn't even what they think that it is. The devil wants to make them think that it's an innate issue with them, a spiritual issue with them, and it's not. It's an act of the will. It's a soulish issue. The soul is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions. Paul didn't say pray that from your heart you'll do the right thing. He simply said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Act of the will. Simple act of the will. So you have no relationship with sin ever again. How do we make that real in our lives? You make that real in your lives by believing what God said, choosing to believe what God said and confessing it. Your greatest confession should be your righteousness. Your most frequent confession should be your righteousness. You should be saying continually something to the effect that sin has no dominion over you. You should be saying continually that Jesus, through his death, he died for us, I died with him. And as a result, I do not have and never will have any relationship with sin whatsoever. Now, folks, you start doing that and you'll grow by leaps and bounds. Now, here's the thing I want to ask you. As I said before, uh, the Bible says, since we have the same likeness of his death, Jesus' death was our death, we have the same likeness of resurrection, we should walk in newness of life. That's a heavenly life. That's a life seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's not Jesus in his earthly walk. Don't let that confuse you. Now, Jesus did a lot of things in his earthly walk that are uh, examples, great examples to us in how and, wh- and what and how we should operate, what we should do and how we should do it. But the life that you now have is his resurrected life, not his earthly life. So it's like this. Think of it like this. When you think of your relationship with sin, when you think of the experience of sin, of the training of your, of your flesh to sin that, uh, that hangs on with us all, think of it like this. If you lived in heaven for 50 years and then God sent you back to the earth to live here and be a witness for 50 years and after that he'd, send, he'd take you back to heaven, how would you operate here on the earth? Would you struggle from day to day wondering if God was mad at you? Would you wonder if God was pleased with you from day to day or moment to moment? You wouldn't. None of us would. You know why we wouldn't? Because we would know that we're citizens of heaven. We've been there. Paul gives us a glimpse to say that's where you are. And you would be no more of a citizen of heaven if you did live there for 50 years and then came back to the earth than you are right now. You would be no more in Christ if you had that experience of walking in heaven for 50 years than you have right now. You would have no more sense of righteousness then than you have right now. The relationship with sin has been broken once and for all. Because Jesus died the death for you. He died unto sin once and only once. So did you. So did you. Now with this knowledge, Paul is going to get us over to Romans chapter 8. 
where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Even if you mess up, there's no condemnation. Why? Because we're in Christ Jesus. Because he died into sin once and for all. That's it. That's the end of the story, folks. It's not that plus however well you do while you're here. It's the end of the story. There is therefore now no condemnation and never will be to them that are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that Jesus died not only for our sins, but he died unto sin. He ended our relationship once and for all. In the same manner that he died the death for us all, we have the same resurrection life. Oh, Father, help us. To understand that that's the basis for Paul's life in ministry. Where he said in so many different ways in so many different places. Something to the effect that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live. Yet, not, yet it's not I that lives. The life that I live now in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God. Help us Father to open our eyes. To have our eyes open to that truth. That the life that we now live is the the Jesus at the right hand of the Father life. We declare, Father, that we are righteous by the finished work of the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I hope you got something out of this. I know everybody gets quiet when you start thinking about, talking about things like this, but I hope it was, was sinking in. God bless you. Have a great week.